0: Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Chat Perks, and in today's show, we're going to be interviewing Pete Cooper. And Pete is a big advocate of of rewilding. If you uh, if you can hear some lips chopping, that's actually my dog who's just having a chew right next to me. She gets a bit needy, so I've got her in in the roomy. Pepper, Pepper, stop chewing. Pep, why you stop doing that? Okay, well if you hear that anyway, that's what it is. It's not me doing anything dodgy. It's the dog slopping its lips. Doesn't really make it sound any better when I say the dog's with me and dodgy noises, but we'll, we'll gloss over that. Um So Pete Cooper is an amazing guy. I've known him for a few years. We both went to to Falmouth, although at different times. I graduated by the time he was there, but we've kind of got that in common. And over that time since, he's got into the whole rewilding world. And I, I know little bits and bobs, but I wasn't a, an expert in it by any means. So Uh, I wanted to interview Pete and really find out what is rewilding, why should we care about rewilding, and some star species, namely lovely bit of beaver, everyone loves a bit of beaver, and and burbot, which is a fish very close to my heart, but we cover all sorts, so hope you enjoy this. Pete has been involved with various wildlife broadcasters, conservation groups, and currently works with Derek Gale. Uh, So Pete, thanks for joining me. I should ask really, how are you doing in all this madness to start with?
1: Yeah, just about hanging in there, keeping vaguely sane. Be um, lucky to have a garden in the house you've got at the moment, so at least you can still see wildlife that's out there. Living in Bristol, it's not quite as rural as I would have liked it uh, for my uh, one day, once a day exercise, but the downs aren't too far away and a bit of green there at least. Um, but actually, it's a good chance to actually focus on all those stuff that you think, oh yeah, I'll get around to at some point, oh, I've really got the time, and realise, well, now I've, from the two jobs, one job's being furloughed, so I've got plenty of time to focus on some writing and whatnot so hopefully we'll do that um if not check in in four weeks and you might find that i've become a insane warlord but in the meantime
0: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> i'd quite like to see that that'd be really interesting
1: yeah i don't think it will last very long but no but got,
0: yeah. you try. that's the main thing so the purpose of this podcast really want to talk a little bit about rewilding so you'll we'll start at the beginning what what is rewilding
1: well uh that in itself is a very tricky statement um if you go back to its literal definition um to when rewilding came up as a word when it was first used in the 90s um <clears throat> that was by a couple of scientists um called michael Soulé and reed Noss, and they came up with the concept of rewilding within a primarily north american context of the free seas so cores corridors and carnivores the idea being that with rewilding you have your big core areas your huge huge wilderness reserves and whatnot which are the focus of all your low activity or no human activity to an extent uh, that these core areas are then connected with corridors through the landscape and that you have your large carnivores in there as a key ecological component that basically creates these trophic cascades these rippling effects that means that the deer the species that can potentially overgraze an area are spread out aren't overgrazing and allow the terrestrial life to flourish so their idea was you know you need big areas all connected with large carnivores in place uh, and that sort of followed through a lot of the north american uh, wilderness philosophies uh, then you go through time, uh, go to Europe. Um, what was not actually called rewilding then, it's sort of been dubbed rewilding now, but that was more of uh, what was called nature development, and that was basically government areas where they used uh, livestock, but in a very unmanaged way, uh, supposedly as proxies for extinct large herbivores, which were then grazing through these big areas um, of reclaimed polder, reclaimed farm, and what have you. Uh, but crucially, these areas were often fenced off. Uh, they weren't connected, and they didn't really have large carnivores, So they weren't really that sort of free seas concept at all. Um, so there's been lots of back and forth in an argument about what rewilding is and isn't. You could argue that the, um, you know, the South Africans, the Africans in general will be doing rewilding for years and years. You could argue that New Zealand conservation is doing rewilding ever since conservation has been a thing in the Western world, because their baseline for vivid wild, uh, sorry vivid wildlife, vivid natural history, uh, was before the Maori arrived about 500 years ago when it was pristine forest all around. So New Zealand conservationists want to conserve and recreate pristine forest with all the formative species. Effectively wilding, that's always been conservation to them. Whereas we get a bit freaked out by wilding, this idea of letting wildlife let rip and break all the key species. Uh, and our idea of nice conservation in the same way New Zealand might see it, for example, is maybe restoring some woodland to coppice, bringing back some short downland, and that kind of thing. These habitats are all effectively just low intensity farmland, So we're in a quite unique position because we've been farming the land for about 3,000 years, we have completely lost that baseline of wild habitats in the same way uh, that New Zealanders see a wild habitat, for example. Um, so we get freaked out by the idea of going back to basics when in reality what we're trying, what we really like, apparently a lot of conservationists like, is farm habitats and that's why see this prevalence on conservation grazing and on scrub management. Despite the fact that scrub is wonderful, for example, because it's got all these niches, you get so many birds nesting, so many insects, so many mammals, and the rest of it. Um, so a lot of it's our attitude. So what is rewarding? Back to that big point, you can see why it's such a messy subject. What seems like a straight line turns into a big ball of wibbly wobbly. It just spirals. <laughs> Wildlife stuff. Um, but I guess the overriding philosophy, uh, I think the philosophy is important, is of just stepping back. And letting nature take the driving seat. Um, yeah. So letting your natural processes take to the fore. You have different places on different continua of rewilding. Uh, there's a chap called Steve Carver at the University of Leeds who created a very nice sort of continuum of rewilding, um, where you basically have this scale from complete urban, man made, you know, bugger all, all the way through to wilderness, untouched, pristine, da dee da. Um, and then you can effectively place different projects along that scale so your typical wildestros nature reserve is just above farming but still you know quite man-made uh, something like net for example Estate in Sussex which is what people tend to talk about wilding in England
0: um, the place with the white stalks is that right
1: white stalks yeah, yeah. being have been released there um, lots of properties in this so You met to sneeze
0: <laughs> oh, no, oh oh
1: no exactly. it wasn't oh I,
0: I sneeze blocked you <laughs>
1: um but it have got all these uh dom- domestic curveballs in a very extensive grazing system very similar to a lot of the european models basically but still allowing lots of wildlife to come through that's got far more wildlife than the average nature reserve but you still have to manage those livestock you've got no predators you still have to keep it contained so it's still not into the full rewilding but it's at the lower end of the rewilding spectrum yeah then you go a bit further along there then you get to places like um Caryfran in Scotland where you put some tree planting to start with because the seed base is so depleted But once you put those trees in you just sort of let it rip and do its own thing Um, And then much further up you've got places like Yellowstone National Park the Okavanga Delta Which are big enough large enough you don't need any management really from a human perspective You have your large herbivores and your large predators and you've basically got the closest thing to a full ecosystem But the difficult thing is particularly when you're looking at large animals um, who have home ranges of thousands of square kilometers, it's going to be really difficult to get huge areas of land like that um, around the world. So that's why the land sharing aspect, the corridors is so important. Um, and river wilding, we can't all just be thinking of it in the sense of having these core areas and just leaving it be. It's a sense of land of wilding into our lives as well. Uh, we're not going to coexist with large herbivores or carnivores in the future uh, if we can't learn to coexist with them ourselves. So that's going to be a big part of it.
0: Yeah. So it's uh, it's not a... It's not a straightforward answer, is it? It's it's kind be, of like you say.
1: Really <laughs> but the philosophy of just sort of stepping back and letting nature take the driving seat is the core thing,
0: definitely. Yeah. So I guess leading on from that is why should we rewild? Like, what is the? Uh, I, I mean, if you you talk to the average person about, it'd be lovely to have a bit of beaver on the. I've probably said that a bit wrong, but like to have a re- have a beaver on the on the river or, or um, you know some of these other species. So. Why should we rewild?
1: Well, effectively, by rewilding, you're giving nature the chance to really just let rip and do what nature has done for millions and millions of years. And we've had a pretty healthy planet uh, for many millions of years with nature just in the driving seat. I mean, a lot of people seem to think that if you just let things go to nature, it's all going to be held in a handcart, and you need people to manage it. But people have only been alive for the last nanosecond of the planet's existence. And they've only been managing the planet in such a distinctive way, uh, the amphicine, if you like, uh, for the nano of that nanosecond. So if we're looking at a planet that needs to be resilient to climate change, uh, to habitat destruction, to pollution, to all the terrible things we're doing to it, we do have to give a fair bit back to nature and let nature do what, what it does. While it's also remembering that we're still a part of that, um, it's very important that we don't, sort of think of it as an us and the rest of it. Um, so I'm trying to get into the habit of saying, yes, the the non-human nature or non-human wildlife and consider that. Um, I mean, that's part of the problem because there are also cultural you to get into there. Um, like even the Amazon rainforest example, which people tend to think is very primary rainforest, a lot of that was actually seeded by uh, native peoples there many thousands of years ago. So we've still been a big part of it for a long time. We can't take ourselves out of that equation. Uh, but when it comes to things like you know, just if you look at flood management, for example, like a relatively small thing in the grand spectrum of the world's um, overarching problems, but certainly in the UK context, quite a big thing. We know now that natural flood management uh, by restoring woodlands, by restoring rivers to natural uh, flows and bends and curves and meanders, and by restoring beavers as well, um, does allow the rivers to not just hold back more water, but slow that flow and basically undo all these uh, mechanization, engineering processes that we've been doing to our rivers for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, if you look at an aerial map of River Valley, you can see all the little trails where there were once rivers braiding through the landscape. And that was dynamic. It was wonderful wildlife habitat, but it also meant the river stayed where the rivers were always going to be. Whereas we canalized it, we engineered it to where we wanted it to go. And when a storm came um, and it didn't fit the way that nature wanted it to fit, it just came right down to our living rooms instead. So if we can restore more areas of land uh, just for, f- for resilience, for example, that's already one really big thing. And then, of course, you're looking at carbon capture, um, soil resilience, soil is a big understated part of, of, of the world at the moment. I mean, soil loss is going to be one of the biggest issues of food security going into the very near future. Um, but beyond all those reasons of utilitarianism, which if you go too far into it, you end up essentially becoming a bit of a robot, and that's all you argue for. It is also the ethical thing to do as well. Um, you know, we, we, we're afraid of being able to appreciate something and admire something for what it is. Um, and I think that's something really step, step back to as a society. And giving nature its full potential is part of that. Now, I'm not necessarily saying rewild everywhere, which is one of the big misconceptions I think a lot of people have of those who support rewilding or wilding, as we to call it. I mean, we still need food, we need farming. Uh, so we will need farming, and we'll see a lot more nature friendly farming but we'll need some more areas which are just left for wilding uh, for nature to really have a chance to go through to that. And then from those areas, a bit like the core, core area of philosophy, basically, you can then have this cascade of nature flowing into our landscapes, which we hopefully then can learn to live alongside. Easy enough for some of the smaller critters, some of the bigger stuff, a bit more challenging. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges going forward, actually. But that is essentially the core reason for it. It creates a more resilient world from what we know so far from the evidence. And it's the right thing to do, effectively, to give nature a chance to just unveil itself.
0: So I suppose it's quite uh, quite a polarizing subject, isn't it? Because you're going to have opposite sides, and some are going to be well, both sides are going to be very passionate. Whether whether what they, you know, I guess it's the 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 time of fake news as well, where one thing spread and you're told this, and another thing spread. I mean, um, it, it's quite a a polarizing subject, is what I'm trying to get at. I guess so. It really is. What's the? I mean, what's what's the negative responses like? What's what's the positive responses like? Because, I, again, I guess they're so uh, passionate about it that they're going to kind of throw. I mean, yeah. people like Derek, for example, their 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 life around it is he kind of based his career over this, hasn't he, for for uh, wilding and whatnot? So it's going to be a very polarizing subject.
1: Mm. And yeah, it's it's all down again to human nature and who we are as people. Um, you can go with the ecological statistics, the environmental, this and that, and died paper after paper, but that's not going to do any good when it's someone's life, their culture, lifeblood, who we are as humans, which we can all, we, we can all relate to. Uh, and that's one of the biggest issues we've seen with wilding in the UK, uh, particularly as a lot of the talk on wilding has focused on the uplands because you know, the uplands from a completely uh, utilitarian, dots on a form sort of side of view, is the most unproductive area of land in the UK, agriculturally. Uh, it is supported only entirely by subsidies. If there wasn't any financial support going into it, just to sort of keep people living there, then there would be no business sense in farming it. And it has a lot of wildlife potential. We know there were once trees much higher up uh, than we sort of think of now, because they were all cut down about 3,000 years ago. And it's out of the way, and you know, they I think that would be the best place to do all this wilding. And that's certainly where, Uh, other great advocates of wilding like George Monbiot have gone um, in his book Feral which essentially brought rewilding into the public light in the UK for the first time uh, about seven years ago but of course there are still communities there and it's not just a sense of oh it's a few sheep farmers, they can find another job to da." the communities themselves are built around that farming culture Uh, that is generations generations, and generations who have lived and breathed um, and lived off that land and to suggest that You can just go and um, take away all that sheep farming in one fell swoop. Of course they're going to say, no, it's rubbish. You just want to get people off the land. You know, nothing of our livelihoods. Who are you to say that it's coming in in from the outside? telling us to go away. Uh, Particularly in Scotland as well, uh, you'll often see regarding compared to almost like a second highland clearances, uh, which of course is something that's still very culturally significant after the atrocities that happened there um, a few hundred years ago. So... You have, it, when you go into rewilding, you can't really do it purely as an environmental or as a zoological scientist. Um, in fact, the better people on these subjects are going to be the social scientists uh, or just people who understand people a lot better. And that's where rewilding Britain had the first major hiccup uh, last year when they started something called the Summit to Sea Project in Wales where they effectively drew a circle on a map of Wales. They uh, were like, right, we're going to do a big rewilding project here and they did try to go in there without this sense of oldest oh, girl land and all the rest of it. They tried to say, right, we're going to come in and we're going to show you new opportunities to rewild the land, da, da 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 da. But with all this good grace in the world, you know, the community took one look at it, they see an AA advert Rewilding Britain with a wolf paw print for its logo of mm-hmm. uh, a president George Monbiot, who in his book said that the Welsh hillsides were uh, barren and you know, it was down to woolly maggots, and they should be better off the hills. And its main funding bodies, as well, held big sheep farming. Um, I not the terms of it, but yeah, it's a big sheep farm business in New Zealand, was being held by some of the uh, trustees of Rewild Britain, uh, who were seen as a main competitor for sheep farming in Wales. And as soon as they saw that, all trust was gone. No matter how much you could try and sweet talk them, yeah, uh, it's like no Rewilding. We don't want that here. And it's just all seen as you know the devil in disguise, basically. Um, so, what was it? Um, was it?
0: Uh, uh, is it Isla Hodgson? I, I might have got her name wrong, but she did uh, an Island. article. Isla, yeah. she did one for BBC Wildlife Magazine. Oh, she might have done a book even, but she kind of got to know both sides, and she kind of went in neutral. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yes. So that, yes, yeah, so the BBC Wildlife article uh, about her PhD. So, um, yeah, ah, okay, Isla and a bit. Island, quite chit chat about all this, and yeah, she basically spent a lot of time with the gamekeepers on the land uh, to know their perspective. And effectively, what you find is actually the majority of uh, these guys working on the hills, you know, aren't the people being sort of very, very vocal. That's sort of if, if you're at the top, but they sort of feel like they're having their battles being fought for them. And up, you know, you need to clarify exactly what's going on there. Um, but these are people who understood and love the land very, very well. Yeah, uh, and just you know want the way uh, a way to, reason to stay there, um, and you've got to respect that. Yeah. And the best way you're going to get wilding to work is when people want it. So, what Rewilded Britain have been doing, uh, which does work a bit better, obviously, as far as I know from what I've you know, seen and heard of what they're doing, is people asking them to come to them, basically. So, rather than rewarding Britain saying, right, we're going to go here, it's people who hear about the wilding uh, projects that go around the country, hear about the philosophy, and then invite them to come and see what's possible. And that's exactly how it should be done, is people realizing what can, and can happen, basically. Um, I mean, recently in Bristol, um, myself and a chap uh, called Alastair Cameron, who works with Friends of the Earth, have set up an informal rewilding group in Bristol, which is all getting members of the community together, uh, just to create that sort of voice, you know, that call for it, basically. Yeah. And one of the things that Alastair has done is he's actually bought a couple of areas of land in Somerset Levels, uh, which he's bought, and just left to wild, basically. Done a tiny little bit here and there, but... Most of the time, if you buy a meadow uh, for conservation purposes, you'll be asked to find a species to manage it for, or you manage it for wildflowers, for latwing, da 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 And it might be great for the certain wildflowers. It might be great for latwing, but maybe not the other species that could potentially thrive there. Uh, we're very good at you know, having a management plan, but not seeing what happens. You might get some species that do great for a couple of years and then collapse. But you know, that's nature, because then something else will do well. And that's exactly what Alice is doing. And if you go there in the summer, it's just full of insects, full of life, because there isn't mowing going on five times throughout the year or anything like that. And that's essentially a response to a lot of the critics of rewilding wilding who say, oh, well, if you're so uh, down with this wilding thing, why don't you go and do it yourself, get the land, and then you can do what you like. So Alice done, yeah, great. That's what we'll do. <laughs> great uh, idea. Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah. And we're actually working to try and get pot money together to buy more into land as it become available. The levels is a particularly good area for it because the Somerset levels is... Well, it Was once a great marsh. Uh, it was probably uh, similar to the Danube Delta, which you find in Eastern Europe today, which today is full of water birds, including Dalmatian pelicans. I and mean, we know Dalmatian pelicans were in the Somerset levels, so their bones were found in Glastonbury. And speaking about Glastonbury, the tour there used to be called the Isle of Glass, which is theorized to be because of the fact that the water was so still around the island that Glastonbury Tor was then that the tour was reflected perfectly back into the waters around it. Um, so when we talk about re- re- wilding in the uplands, we also forget about the lowlands and particularly the floodplains, the areas like the fens, the levels, which again, uh, very difficult, you know, very uneconomic kind of to farm, so flood for a lot of the year, very difficult to live on a lot of places as well. There are certainly a lot of areas where you can do a lot of good wilding. I'm not advocating flooding the whole of the levels all over again because you know there <laughs> are a lot of people who live there and work there. But if you look at the amount of wildlife you get in this tiny, relatively tiny bit of land in the levels, which forms the Avalon Marshes, where you've got the RSPB Ham Wall. Uh, where you've got a natural reserve, which name escapes me right now. Um, you know, you've know you got breeding purple heron, great white egret. Uh, yeah. all over the place, Night heron have returned. Um, little bit of returns. Uh, the dykes are crawling with the sound of technically introduced Iberian water frog, but they are fulfilling the niche of the pool frog, this abundant dinal frog, which then is feeding all these uh, new, well, recolonizing breeders. And that's just one tiny area of land. If you increase the size of the apple and marshes two, three, four, five times over, you get a phenomenal amount of wildlife from that. Um, and when it comes to the land purchase side of things and levels, the land's much cheaper as well uh, because yeah. it floods for a lot of year. So that's uh, a really good support, place to focus on uh, and get a lot more sort of floodplain in wilding. is a really good thing to do. One of the other big debates in wilding is how open or closed the land was. Um, a lot of people who advocate the, uh new nature dynamic in Europe with all the large grazers say that it used to be a savannah uh France beer the scientists came up with a lot of those theories <laughs> look at the evidence I think it's a bit too simplistic to say it was a one big open complex um there would have been a lot more closed canopy forests but where you had these open plant species that thrive in farmland or scrub today um in a land before farming the floodplains the wetlands is probably where you'd get them because that's where you have these flooding events happening all the time so it's due to a lot of tree growth and then you get the beavers, which do all their engineering. And then you would have had the aurochsum, which was the extinct wild cattle, about six foot the shoulder. And we know from um, something called stabilized tape analysis, so I won't get too sciencey. Basically, it tells us what these animals used to eat in the past. Uh, these things were primarily eating a lot and a lot of grass. And you need a lot of grass to feed a herd of one ton cows, basically. And you would have found it primarily in these floodplains. And that's certainly where we found all the bones of aurochsum along the floodplains. So the wetlands of pre-farming britain would have been a real wildlife spectacle and if you can work to get some of those back within the next century i think that'd be something very special indeed
0: yeah just just a flavor in it if you like mm-hmm. um can you can you hear rummaging in the background at all because i can hear my my family are rummaging uh in um, another
1: room i can't hear anything no okay
0: that's fine that's all right then i was just gonna go and bollock them um, so <laughs> um so we talked a bit about that i mean so let's let's find out a little bit more about you pete so you were at XT university Yep. But you were in Falmouth
1: or Penryn, I suppose right. technically. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. And uh, when did lived in Falmouth, went to the university in Penryn, but was at the university of Exeter. It's very confusing. <laughs> and when did you when did you graduate? Uh, so graduated from undergrads uh, in twenty sixteen, and then I sailed on to do a masters in biodiversity conservation at the same uni. Uh, so yeah, I finished that a year later.
0: Oh, so, so you're still so, relatively yeah. fresh out, aren't you? When you think about, it. I always think you've been doing yeah, it for ages.
1: Years. Yeah, three but, years out of uni.
0: But because I always think if you. St- being at uni when I was, but I was a bit before you. And then I met you at Bird Fair That's in a right. yeah. in a tent, and we liberated some champagne some from, drink yeah. that I should just say it makes it sound like common thieves. We it was <laughs> it was there, and I think that whoever had it were done with it.
1: Well, exactly. But it would have been a waste of
0: life. We were recycling, um, but yeah. So so you're yeah. So you've not been out that long, but in that short amount of time, you've you've done a lot. I think you really you've been pretty busy.
1: Yeah. Um, I st- I'm still. Learning and listening and trying to go along, like I still don't feel um, like I'm completely in it. And to be honest, I think no one ever really should, particularly when you're doing stuff in the natural world. Um, you know, sometimes you, you, the, the imposter syndrome does hit quite massively in a lot of ways because uh, you do think, Oh, god, what am I doing? Da, da, da. I'm so fresh out of uni, um, but you just keep doing and you learn the best you can, uh, listen as much as you can, as I say, and just go for it. Uh, the reason. I think is the most important reason for doing this is because I just spent a lot of time volunteering uh, while I was at uni and a year up between uh, sixth form university as well. Where I just did as much as I could uh, volunteering around, um, learning from the people on the ground. And that's the most important thing. Uh, it's really been infused about it. Uh, so if anyone listening to this who is uh, going for uni or about to start uni in some sort of course, um, I would say the most important thing is don't just do your degree and assume that's going to be it. In fact, that's the last people we one. Spend all as much spare time as you can volunteering, be it within societies at university or or actually even more so in outside uh, things, because there's lots of things, particularly in the conservation world, that will never get taught within uni. Uh, All the stuff I do with Derek now is because I volunteered there to begin with. I used to do uh, a day a week there just doing the animal husbandry, like the water well breeding program he has, uh, the beavers, a lot of the animals he has for wildlife photography and film. And, you know, you would never get told how to do a reintroduction, um, how you breed water valves in a university degree, but that's the important stuff.
0: Is, is there not a, not a call for it at uni, I and suppose? Unfortunately
1: not. The water bottle <laughs> is that's really lacking. I think it's something to change. Um, but that is, yeah, it's literally the most important thing. And the other thing which I think is really crucial, and again, they actually completely gloss over, uh, if you're doing a degree at uni, is the politics of it all. And I guess the politics is probably more critical to conservation than it is to other natural sciences like behaviour and um uh, genetics and whatnot, which were probably limited within the academic the academic world. But when you look at the conservation, you're dealing with the politics of businesses which want nothing to do with the natural world. Um, and that's where someone like me who seeks to avoid conflict at all costs and just wants to sit in a nice woods or a nice wetland just watching wildlife, the wildlife, and ensuring that there's lots more of it in the future, which is why I went to conservation to ensure there would be even more of it. Uh, can be a little challenging to start with because suddenly you're thrown into the world you're trying to get away from the human world where we yick and yak about this and the other which doesn't really make any sense in the, the day but that's exactly how you, you know these things get done so yeah learning the ways of people is the most important thing and particularly wilding i mean that's like the top end of politics.
0: yeah well it, it's it's different because i mean obviously i'm not I'm, I'm more the filmmaking side but you end up sometimes working with people you don't necessarily share their views. so oh, completely. as you know i'll you know i do a lot of work with fish and uh, I work with some river keepers and you know, ninety nine percent of them are brilliant, but then you'll get one casually saying how they, they shot a seal or they shot an otter or something. You're like, you really mm. shouldn't be telling me this, you know. Yeah. Um and you yeah, because I, I I love otters. So it's it's quite hard really, it's when when you're hearing those views and you're a bit like, Oh, I'm not sure about this buddy, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. Uh but equally you can see that where there is common ground it can be really built upon very well indeed. And one of the things that uh, Derek's been doing for quite a few years now uh, and I went on one a couple of years ago uh, is a study trip to Bavaria where they released beavers about 50 years ago and the beavers are now pretty much everywhere so it's a good forecast as to where we might be in a similar period of time uh, because I mean what we had our first uh, free living official beaver release there've been a few more before then um, in England in 2015 so leading to what 2065 may well have beavers in every watercourse so
0: we'll be what um, we're going to be we'll be in- Late '70s, so we should see it. Hopefully, hopefully yeah, still be, hopefully,
1: hopefully still yeah, be yeah. around. You know, we <laughs> yeah, get, get through crisis after crisis. Yeah, um, but you know they've got beavers in every sort of creek and little stream and river valley, and they're doing all the amazing stuff for doing in the environment. And we, we stepped out to the swan beaver wetland, which has been carved into this old stream, and what was once just a tiny narrow uh, inlet of a river was now this completely flooded of what they looked like it had been from east africa or something if all these dead trees stand in the water reeds and sedges and rushes growing at plenty and we were picking up sand lizards on the edges of the banks which again is an animal which in the uk we completely I, th- I think
0: i saw some pictures you i thought you might have shown me a picture of that of a, yeah, of a yeah. sand lizard on a beaver dam, which yeah. i was like what what
1: <laughs> like, we saw it swim you know yeah you know, got insects, you know they completely resets the rule book on what we think because we've got such a sterilized landscape that were based on our assumptions on wildlife that's actually cling on to the edge, basically. Where, again, this is it. If you let nature take the fore a little bit, it just reopens all these relationships that were there all along, that we just closed off. So sandlaces were one thing. Uh, it's a valley where, before the beavers arrived, there was a pair of redback shrike, which is now extinct as a breeding bird in the UK, uh, just about hanging on. The, the beavers came. They created more dead wood. They created more standing vegetation, which in turn allowed more insects to thrive. And they've now got about Sec- something like seven pairs of redback green in that valley now. And again, that's a bird which, if you ask an ornithologist, is a bird of dry, scrubby heath and gorse and whatnot, but you know, beaver dams, beaver wetlands, do exactly the same thing. Uh, so the ecology was great, but it gets aside from the fact that Bavaria is, in many places, a bit like Norfolk with Germans. It's very flat, <laughs> natural, uh, <laughs> lots of potato fields, lots of drainage ditches, flood banks, what have you. And if you've got a... The rodent, which is the second largest species of rodent in the world, uh, tunneling through those banks and smashing through your trees uh, like a badly behaved teenager, then of course it's going to create lots of tension. But Bavaria has a very sound, very management plan, which is sort of three-tiered basically. So you've got a beaver causing problems in your land. Your first step is to mitigate. So you put a pipe which sets the water to divert outside the dam. You put metal around your trees so they can't actually gnaw it down, Or special. Uh, beaver paste, uh, which yeah, they bite and they don't want taste off, so they leave it be. Um, but if that doesn't work, then you can translocate somewhere else, which has super habitat, but no beavers and beavers can live quite happily there instead. But if there's no way of mitigating around it, and if there's no free, uh, beaver pads available, then they go for the culling option, okay. but they've got enough beavers there that when they cull and they, they do cull about a thousand beavers a year in Germany as a whole, not just Bavaria, um, it's still barely dent the population because the population is so large. Yeah. Are they, this might be a strange question, but are they edible? Can you eat beaver? No, they're very, they're very edible. Yeah, are yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, they? try <laughs> ourselves over there. Um, no, have to sort of pre-order it a bit apparently, but it's very nice apparently.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm just thinking, you're not wasting them then, are you? You've there's some oh, sort, no, there's no. some sort of you know, I know they've got to be caught. I've, I'm not against culling uh, for for the right reasons, but I'm just thinking if you can make use of that animal, then it's always good, isn't
1: it? Exactly it, yeah, exactly. And actually, well, the reason beaver went extinct in UK and nearly went extinct in Europe was the fact it was so usable. Uh, because the beaver's fur is so, so thick. It's got two layers, so you've got some really nice coats out of that and hats. Uh, The beaver's meat, they very, very tasty. And the fact that the beaver lived in the water, had a scaly tail, meant that the old monks used to class it as a fish, so they could eat it on Fridays. Ah, crafty! Um, And then they've got these scent glands, which contain castorium, which is how they mark their territories. And that castorium is made up of components very similar to aspirin, because of all the willow bark they eat. So effectively, it's like paracetamol. So you've also got a headache cure. What's so, the problem, so beaver's
0: beaver's ass is a headache cure, basically.
1: Completely, yeah. <laughs> <a bit> <laughs> Hangover. Find yourself a beaver, give it a rub of a bit of scent glands, and you're sorted. Um, so I'll, I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> and they used, to, in fact, they used to uh, use the scent extract of the castorium, which is the uh, uh, the chemical which used for scent marking, or rest of it. Uh, they used to be use as an extract in vanilla. So their oh. ice cream used to be used with beaver for quite a while as well. So effectively, you've got a one-stop shop, which is a butcher's, a department store, a pharmacy, and an ice cream parlor. So right. beaver was used too well in the past, uh, which led to its near extinction. So at one point in the 19th century, I think they reckon there's probably only about 200 European beavers left in Belarus. So yeah, they they took quite a hammering. Um, so it's lucky that we uh, we brought them back when they did. We got,
0: we got a few. Um so, we've talked about a few species. I mean, is, is there a species that hasn't been brought back to the UK that, that you personally would like to see
1: back? Oh, oh, where do I start? Where do I start? <laughs> um, one, only one.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: hmm. uh, well, I'll start off by not going for the easy options. So, you can read lots about why we should bring lynx back, you can read lots about beavers, you can read lots about wild boar and all the rest of it. Um, and eagles, and I could talk about things like wildcats, which you've been working on, but again, there's quite a lot of read about that. So, actually, I'm going to talk about species that will be quite close to your heart, Jack, and probably quite a controversial choice, which is the European tree frog. Okay, um, yes, yeah, yeah. And so, the, f- the first thing is, we don't know for certain if this was a native species, simply because we haven't found uh, any bones from the Holocene, which is basically the time after the Ice Age which is our baseline for when a native species is a native species. But we have good records uh, from historical sources that the tree frog was previously found in Britain at least uh, between the 16th and 18th centuries. There's a very good paper that came out a couple of years ago, which has five references from very qualified naturalists who wouldn't be confused with anything else, about tree frogs, these little frogs that sit on the leaves and are making them great choruses in the late late spring, um, which suggests they were here. There was a colony in the new forest from about the early um, 20th century, is the earliest records of it, with no apparent sense of where they came from, which may think, may people think, could well have been a relic population. And many more tree frog colonies have survived in our climate very well, because this species you find throughout Europe, it survives in British temperatures very, very well indeed. We know they can survive and reproduce here. And we know from experience that we have a habit of finding amphibians in the UK we think are non native. Pool frog's a great example where there were calling of pool frogs in Norfolk, and we thought, oh, it's a bit odd they're there, you know, they probably choose some point in the 20th century, da-da-da. Uh, until they went extinct, and then they found that the pool frog was actually native because they found bones from the Saxon time. Just a complete random finding, they happened to find some bones. And it's much easier when you look at amphibian records to find the bones of pool frogs um, and water frogs in general than it is tree frogs, even from records in countries in Scandinavia and Northern Europe. So if you're trying to find the bones of tiny little tree frog, Uh, Going back way in the past. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do So the fact that we have these old historical records uh, From before the 19th century people collecting lots of things uh, The fact it can survive very well in this climate and the fact you tend to find it in Finland Which has a very similar purpose of to what we have suggests it would have made it over uh, Before we were cut off from the rest of mainland suggests it could well have been a former native species And while a tree frog isn't a typical rewilding species because it's not engineering habitat like the beaver it's certainly not eating deer like wolves do. I think that'd be quite... No,
0: no, you'd need a big tree frog to get down a, uh, a red deer, wouldn't you?
1: It'd be like piranhas, like little froggy piranhas. <laughs> I think. Um, then, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice little species to have. But it's a species that will potentially thrive in a much warmer UK with climate change coming on its way. It'll thrive in the wetlands that recreate by beavers. In fact, the, when the tree frog declined uh, in Latvia, they actually made a correlation between the extinction of the beaver and the decline of the tree frog because what a tree frog needs is these scrubby habitats it isn't really a tree frog to be honest um it needs a scrub around ponds to breed in uh which are linear moving through the landscape and beavers do that in a fantastic fantastic way the trouble with tree frogs is they get isolated and localized very quickly because they are so depend on this sort of scrubby habitat and ponds um, which is part of the reason they went extinct in a lot of europe and probably why that went extinct in britain as well built a pool frog lots of wetland drainage and then that leaves lots of tiny little areas uh, where you find them. And the tree frogs are really highly valued for medicine. So I mean, they'd be a lot easier to collect to extinction, which is probably what happened with the new forest colonies as well. Right. Um, so if we discovered some tree frog uh, bones from way, way, way back, that would be a straight line to call for reintroduction. But equally, I think you've got to really, you know, think carefully about what is right to reintroduce. Um, we get very stimmied up about uh, non-native or native species. And the fact that the tree frog is currently regarded legally in the same vein as the American mink and the red signal crayfish, which are two genuinely invasive species, are genuinely non-native, and do cause harm we don't want, uh, yet the tree frog is a perfectly natural part of the fauna in identical habitats in Europe, and is very, very likely to native species here, the fact that it's in the same breath is just not right at all. And as we are depleting ecosystems in such a way, we need to create as resilient an environment as we possibly can. Um, one of the best ways it was put to me, actually, by uh, Harvey Tweets, who we both know, amazing young naturalist, only 16 years old, um, when sort of justifying sort of reintroduction, even in a world which you might completely screw over through climate change and all the rest of it, is if you can reintroduce as much as you possibly can or, and restore the environment, restore habitats as much as, possible as you can to help out the things that are already there as well, then you leave the environment in as good as a place it possibly can be, so that in the event we do have a complete climate breakdown, it does become a complete disaster, there's at least some things that might survive, a little cockroaches through the apocalypse or the barbed boar in Chernobyl, you know?
0: Yeah, um, you would hope so, um, wouldn't you?
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's, that's your worst-case scenario planning. Um, but you plan to have as big a pool as possible, so there's more likelihood that more things will survive through. But the best-case scenario we do want to go for is that we work to avert the climate crash as best we can, that we can create a better uh, environmental consciousness, which is a big, challenging thing. A lot of the problems we have with the environment isn't, from an economic standpoint... It's our moral viewpoint, it's the fact that we can't see a value to the rest of life in this world and we can't uh, take a step back from some of the economic growth we're doing at times. Um, I'm hoping that one of the silver linings from the pandemic we're living through at the moment is that we come out a lot more aware of what really matters in life uh, and we have more sympathy for the rest of the world in itself. Whether that happens or whether people will be too too busy to go back to business as usual, we don't know. But that's what I hope might happen. And if we can utilize that into in the best-case scenario of restoring as much as we can and working ourselves for a better world, and that's obviously what we're going to do. Yeah. But again, if we end up being completely human and do end up trashing ourselves and the world to extinction, if you can still restore as much as we can now, then at least some stuff might carry on into the next geological age, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's long-term planning.
1: That's not my thing. That, that's Harvey Tweed's thing. Just sort of clarify. Yeah, <laughs> that is Amazing. definitely long-term planning. Amazing.
0: He is. He's a great. He's a great uh, kid. Because I I didn't know he was sixteen when I met him, and I thought, "Uh oh, who's this?" And then I realised it was um he was him. But yeah, he's very 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 knowledgeable. I, I'm glad you mentioned Tree Frogs actually, because the final point I'm going to make in the podcast is that. With with uh, with wilding, I think you want to say rewilding, but now you've said you'd rather say wilding. I'm trying to train myself to say that. Yeah. Um, that it's always, it's the lynx, it's the wolf, it's the bear. It's all the big charismatic megafauna. But what about the small guys, you know, the, the large coppers, the black veined whites, uh, the herptiles like you mentioned, and one that, that's particularly close to me is the burbot, which I thought I'd bring up at some point during this, because the train is rolling, as I'm sure you're aware, that that it's going, people don't know what a burbot is, it's a freshwater cod, and this is an animal that went extinct in our lifetime, in the 60s, late 60s was the last confirmed burbot in Britain, so it's a forgotten species that's gone, if you know, if if red squirrels went extinct 60 years ago, people would would still be talking about it but no one gives a monkeys about this slimy bottom-dwelling cod, but they are incredible creatures, and uh, I'm, I'm try and help as much as I can.
1: I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can get them back. Hmm. Yeah, we've, we've definitely given our support, uh, me and Derek, to uh, Jonah Tosney from Norfolk Rivers Trust, who's been, uh, along with his team, working in absolute socks off to get this Berber project going. Um, so it's really great to see it, it looks like it's going ahead now. Uh, because again, one of the biggest problems you find with reintroductions, particularly with a species that has gone from the UK, uh, is just the licensing and it gets license approval after approval after this and that and da, da, da da and at the end of the day you can release 300 million non-native pheasants uh, which have unaccounted for ecological effects as well uh sorry 30 million uh, non-native pheasants uh, yeah. a year um and yet you know if you want to reach something that's formally native you have to go through something equivalent to don Pay's inferno in terms of licensing <laughs> Now, I'm not saying it should be a complete free-for-all, normal reducing all things. Uh, but, you know, we should be much more streamlined about it. And when you have people who know what they're doing, doing it, then we should give more, more freedom for these things to happen. Um, so, yes, the burbot, uh, I can't wait to see what happens with that. Because again, it's a species which, you know, if you're that concerned about it, is, is the world going to collapse if the burbots are back in the rivers? No, of course it's not. You're not even going to see it. No. it's doing its thing, and you're just getting that extra step in the, in the rivers east and back. It's fantastic. And who knows? Maybe we'll go on to sturgeon next after that. Yeah, well, I was going to chat a little bit. I mean, because
0: the, the interesting thing with, with Atlantic sturgeon is that historical evidence, they were never numerous in the UK. They were present, but they weren't, the rivers weren't lined with 800-pound sturgeon. But they were present. And I don't know if there is any historical evidence that they bred. Presumably, they must have bred, because that's the only reason they're coming up rivers. Um, but I remember talking to the Environment Agency about this, and they were saying they they were they were found in rivers, but they weren't they weren't all over the place. Because at the minute, I think there's only one river in Europe where European sturgeon breed, and that's in France. I think I can't remember the name off the top of my head. It's Galgoine or something like that, and that's the only river they're found. But they mm. are trying to to kind of spread them. But that would be spectacular. You imagine you oh, know walking yeah. along your riverbank. And something yeah, yeah. that is bigger than a sh- bigger than a shark swimming up the river would just be bonkers, wouldn't it? Oh, completely.
1: Yeah. But I, yeah, I did. To the willows. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did see a burbot a few years ago, actually, when Ian Welby, who was one, I think he's one of the advisors to Jonah, he was mm. uh, breeding them for a feasibility study in two thousand and seven, and they had this eight pound female burbot, and it looked like a dinosaur. It was absolutely incredible. So when i was trying to film all the fish people say well you didn't get the bird i was like well i saw one so does that you know kind of counts but um i i i'd I'd love to yeah i'm i'm really hopeful they can make it happen and i know there's a lot of there is some opposition not not a lot i think for the most part people are behind it um the the main concern being about temperature about could they breed but if you look at their range they're found you know all the way down to france germany similar temperature bracket to us so I don't think breeding is going to be an issue. the The main reason they think they went extinct was um, the the rivers kind of not rivers but drains being uh, dried up and and connectivity, like you mentioned earlier, and and water quality. And both of those things um, have have been rectified
1: to a degree now. So, you know, if we don't do it, we're not going to know, are we? That it might not happen. That's exactly it. And part of probably have reintroduction in the UK. And uh, just to clarify, we talk about reintroductions of separating wildly for the time being. So okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Of rewilding, yeah, uh, but it's very easy to sort of maybe do like a door mouse reconstruction called rewilding,
0: yes, yeah, really yeah,
1: yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But you know, some are more relevant so beavers and large predators, obviously, more relevant in a rewilding context. Um, smaller stuff, yes, definitely, but you know, they're, they're a sort of smaller part of like maybe a bigger com- uh, rewilding complex, but that's yeah, semantics could go for ages about that but anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, ref- one of the problems we find in the UK is this conflation of risk with hazard. We are horribly, horribly, horribly overcautious in this country. Uh, you know, I come back to the point I made about well, it's so easy to release pheasants for shooting, yet you have to go through the seven stages of hell for licensing. Um, any sort of potential difficulty, like the temperature, as you say, is highlighted upon, and that's usually the sole reason not to do it. Uh, and you know, people will go, oh, yes, oh, we could do, but there's that, oh, yes, and they sort of shy away from it. And it's like, do you not realise that we are the 29th from the bottom of the most nature-depleted countries in the world? Do you not realize that, you know, we have to bring out all these reports year after year saying so how terrible all this stuff should be done about it? And then when someone tries to do something about it, it's seen as a horrible thing to do. And I think part of that also comes down to the fact we go in too much into the uh, philosophy of just leave it be, it'll sort itself out. Well, no, it won't. They won't come back on their own accord if there are enough of them to come back from. Even for things like birds, where we think this is something which, you know, the birds will fly back and turn up and be fine. You know, birds very often... Is point made very well by Ben McDonald in his book Rebirding are natal breeders and they return to the point where they were last bred. You know you'll get curlew um, who are now about 30 years old these are very long lived birds that fly back to the west country still where they were hatched out when the farmland was a little bit more uh, complacent, uh, not complacent, uh, convenient to their cause. Now it's a complete dead zone, nowhere for curlews to breed but they still get these old single birds returning to because that's what they know. So having reintroductions are so important to create that new base um, and it and by doing so, it doesn't mean just do a little reintroduction here and there. And what to do is do a reintroduction, tick the box, you know, that's it. You need to do a reintroduction, succeed in it, then do it to the next place and do it in the next place and roll it out and make it cheaper. Uh, obviously, when you've got a few conservation charities looking at the sheer scale of that, that's very daunting uh, from a cost and money point of view and organization, da da. But at the end of the day, if you have uh, conservation organizations, whatnot, find some initial injections or funding initial training and whatnot. There's no reason that certainly for the smaller stuff, uh, for things like your small animals, for your small birds, for your insects, for your reptiles, that you can have trained up uh, individuals, landowners, farmers, who are breeding these animals on the land, getting payments for it, ideally from the government. Uh, if that's something that we can get from the new Elms Environmental Land Management schemes as a payment, well, should that would be fantastic, and then releasing them out on the land that they've now made suitable for the species again. You know, you know, why shouldn't we have farmers with pens of water voles, with surabuntines of sand lizards um, and sheds breeding glowworms and then sort of going out and doing the things there. Um, the point is what Derek's made uh, for the conservation of the future in the UK, uh, which I think is quite good. So it needs to be more of a three tier thing. A uh, conservationist needs to be sort of part ecologists and in the sense they need to know the nature, they need to be naturalists, obviously know what they're talking about and doing. Part zookeeper for the breeding and reintroduction side of things and the actual management of these animals and the specialized needs directly. And then part farmer for the ability to just go out and just do stuff on mass and on scale because, you know, farmers do. Um, So that's something that, you know, we really need to sort of step forth into the future of all of our introductions. And then that means all the big stuff where you do have these very long feasibility projects and lots of social engagement, all the rest of it, it's safe for the species that really need it. Things like your your eagles, your beavers, your wildcats, your pine martins, uh, and maybe in the future links, maybe even wolves as well. Uh, the fact that, you know, you'll have a reintroduction project in the country today for a single species of insect, which again requires a two-year feasibility, and that's a lot of engagement here, da, 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 and it's only released on one site, and sees another site the next year. It's far, far too slow, and it's way too much money for the scale it needs to be at. And, one of the, and ultimately, how is it seen by people? On Gogglebox uh, last year, they had a segment where the Gogglebox uh, families were watching a news piece about the reintroduction of checkered skipper to Hampshire. And only one of those families was like, oh that's nice. The others are like, what's the point? It's a little butterfly. How, why do they put all that money into that? Because if they're sitting in their garden and a butterfly flies past, they don't know whether it's a, a peacock or a checkered skipper. The general public at large, we're very much a bubble. General public at large don't really know about these things. No. most so no. important have projects which are engaging, which a lot of conservationists might accuse people of being sensationalist and all the rest of it or what's the word they like to use um oh, just i can't say exactly, that but it's like you it seen sort of selfish and egotistical and but no it's about engaging them not us that's been the main motivation for the white stork reintroduction uh and net, for example in southeast england because yes the white stork uh doesn't engineer habitat isn't a keystone species uh there's no critical critical need to bring back now it's, it's completely least concern. it's not endangered globally at all but it's a species that lives alongside people. That is one of the most culturally significant animals in Western civilization. You don't ignore a pair of storks nesting on your house or nesting on your church, and that's one of the projects we're looking at now. We're looking at a glowworm project to do exactly the same sort of thing with glowworms. We do now have some greater conservation impetus for them. There's a paper that came out this month that found there is now a national decline in glowworms. But equally, there are species that—no um, offence to the obscure ants and beetles and butterflies of the world—which I do obviously love as a naturalist. But to your average jail on the street, a glowworm, an insect that literally glows in the dark, it's, it's light in the darkness, which could be on your local patch. is just magic. It's just fantastic. It's and going to captivate is
0: like. people, isn't it?
1: Exactly. It's what I like to call the natural gateway drugs. Alongside <laughs> species that you need for genuine ecological reasons and the rest of it, we need these natural gateway drugs as well to just engage them, not us. Um, because then if you've got great support for it, um and there's greater impetus to push, push funding into happen make things happening on a grander scale happening quicker as well.
0: Yeah. Well I think we'll end on gateway drugs uh for this, but <laughs> natural okay. gateway drugs, I should say. Um well look, thanks thanks for taking the time to chat, Pete. I mean there's there's a lot to uh to digest there, but hopefully that's kind of opened people's eyes a little bit more to to the world of, of wilding.
1: Mm. Oh, thank you very much. It's been great.
0: Cool, cheers. Well take care, buddy.
1: Yeah, you too. Stay safe. So that was
0: Pete Cooper informing us all about rewilding and some of the fantastic species that we could potentially have back one day. So, back to nature of the week, and I'm going to choose Dungeness this week, which is a fantastic reserve um, on the southern tip of Kent, not too far from the Essex border. And Dungeness is unlike anywhere else in the British Isles. It's described as the only desert in the UK and if you go there you can kind of see what it is it looks very bleak and bland at first glance but it's just a haven for so much wildlife it's fantastic for birds fantastic for invertebrates and rare plants and it's around 12 square miles and only a small part of it is the rspb i always i think a lot of people think it's a it's all rsp but it's not it's a national nature reserve for a lot of it. And you've got the coastline, really good for looking at birds out to sea, particularly in the winter. You get lots of sea ducks and skewers and, and all kind of rare birds, loads of great crested grebes greaves for some reason. I don't know why, but you get a lot of them along the coastline there. You've got a birds observ- observatory, I can say it, uh, along there as well, which is fantastic for um, kind of watching birds. And there is a hide on the beach as well. But I'm mainly going to be focusing on the RSPB reserve. Now the reserve is set back from the sea, but it has large shingle areas, freshwater lakes, wet grassland and wildflower meadows. In the spring, yellow wagtails, red starts and cuckoo can be heard and then the <laughs> what's it we <with> use? <laughs> Sorry about that, I just had to tame my Dachshund as she's getting a little bit angsty. Um, in the summer, it's fantastic for things like bittern. And I've been there before and had bittern booming, and you can feel it in your chest. It's a phenomenal uh, thing to hear, that kind of mm, mm. That's my terrible impression of a bittern booming. Um, and Hobbies, taking uh, dragonflies and invertebrates and things like that. And in the winter, you've got ducks, pintails, goldeneye, uh, smew, it's just a feast for birds and that's not even getting into all the amazing and rare invertebrates and, and plant life there. Such as the short haired bumblebee which kind of fits into what we were talking to Pete because they were actually reintroduced there. So we do get some of the smaller stuff reintroduced as well sometimes. And great for reptiles: marsh frog, uh, grass snakes, common lizards, slow worms, lots and lots of, of reptiles there as well. But as for the reserve itself. Um, you drive along a kind of dirt track to get to the main reserve. And the dirt track's well worth kind of having your bins on your lap because it's great for watching the birds. You'll see hares, uh, foxes sometimes, things like that. You can hire binoculars at the visitor centre. Um, the visitor centre, again, it's not really catered like a calf. So there, there is a coffee-making machine and stuff. So you're not really going in there to sit down and eat or drink or anything like that. But it, it's got everything you need. There are loos, um, there's a there's a quite a large car park, which is a, it's a free car park. Um, to just park up and go in the centre. Obviously, if you're an RSPB member, you can go around that part of the reserve uh, for free. Otherwise, again, I think there's a small charge for you to go there. Um, it's a good walk, but you can easily do it in, in a morning. They've got lots of hides, which are really good for watching the wildlife um, and, a, and a little picnic area there as well. So it's a great reserve all round. plenty to see. Um, highly recommend it. So Dungeness is, is absolutely phenomenal place. That's not getting... I mean, the, the whole wider area we could, we could talk about all day, but we'll focus mainly on that. And anyway, this brings me to the end of the podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed uh, listen, learning a little bit about rewilding and, and some of the stuff that could be introduced. And I'll catch you in the next podcast tomorrow. Cheers.